0: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. Dan Torres, our colleague and contributor and producer, is with me here in the studio. You have been hearing this announcement about texting us. If you have a comment, a question, angry at us for some reason, want to pose a question, you can do this during the show or 24-7 by texting, texting only, 413-586-7140. One issue that I continue to be really concerned about it. when we talk about the yes possibility of Donald Trump returning to the White House one is the existential threat to democracy and it is very real and part and parcel of that threat is my concern and the concern of many people of what a second Trump presidency might mean to the most vulnerable people in our society, in our communities. And that is why I am so thrilled that we can have with us today Claire Higgins, who is the Executive Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, same Claire Higgins, former mayor of Northampton from 2000 to 2011. As the Executive Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, she would be a person on the front lines of the fight to try to preserve life and necessities and dignity for marginalized communities in our region and for people who are most vulnerable to what a second Trump administration might do. Claire Higgins, thank you so much for being back with us on the show. I would appreciate it to the extent you are able to comment on what you fear a second Trump presidency might mean, what the Biden administration has, mean, has meant, and I guess it would be necessary to ask you to go back and share with us What did happen with the first Trump presidency uh, that might give us an indication of what is likely to happen in the second? Claire Higgins, how serious a situation would this be, could this be for these communities you serve as Executive Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley?
1: Good morning, Bill. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, And uh, you threw me back to those days when... um, Mr. Trump is elected president, and we all feared what he was going to do because he was, his, his vision of America was pretty, um, bleak. And, uh, so what he did, um, was lay out a vision right away, sort of putting the most, um, affluent people at at the center of his policymaking, um, Reducing a vision that it reduced protection for workers and consumers, one that also, um, you know, really dug into and cut programs that would support the poor and uh, the people living with low incomes. And I'm really talking about, you know, there's this vision of poverty as something that is, um, you know, located in one neighborhood or one place or one area or somewhere else, it People who are living with lower incomes are all around us. Seniors, his budgets were bad for seniors. They were bad for families with young children. They were bad for families that struggled because of his potential cuts to the ACA, would struggle for health insurance, um, child care, people who depend on SNAP, the the, uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and also um, tied... access to those programs to work if those folks weren't already working. Uh, so it's a real, it was it was a really dystopian version of what I think a lot of us think the United States is. He was not able to make a lot of those cuts. He, he tried, and he wasn't able to make a lot of them, which was a good thing. And there's that famous moment when he tried to, to uh, shut down the ACA, known as Obamacare to some, and John and uh, John Kane gave him a thumbs down and refused over, over uh, to be the the vote that would have closed down um, the ACA. So I worry about all that. You know,
0: one. <laughs> let me let, let me let me ask you this: one aspect of the uh, phenomenon, kind word that is Donald Trump, is that. Uh, a lot of the media tends to blow off what he says because they say well it 's only Trump you know talking it just doesn't necessarily yeah. mean yeah. what he says yeah. um but I think that's a really dangerous approach to Donald Trump, oh, and I, I think the media is failing us in that regard, and we should take deadly seriously what he says he wants to do, and one thing he said recently he wants to do is he wants to abolish. The Affordable Care Act, what you refer to as the Absolutely. ACA, uh, what is sometimes called Obamacare, which tens of millions of people, including tens of millions of children, depend on for health care. Elders, too. Um, and yep. he says, I'm going to abolish it. What would that actually mean well, for low-income persons?
1: Yeah, it would, they, would, they wouldn't they would have access to health care, ultimately, right? They, they just wouldn't have access to health care. And it's not... Like, it, it, let's say he abolishes Obamacare, so the, the so-called ACA. That's, you know, that's the program that serves working people, right? That's <laughs> it's not just people who are who are um, eligible for some for financial assist, assistance, like um, like um, aid to families with dependent children. It, it's also people who are, are working but making low incomes right it's it, it's not just it, it's an understanding that the more the healthier our community the less public costs we have rather than the more public costs that, so i'm not sure what i mean we live in massachusetts where i where the idea of universal health care was was brought forward by a republican governor <laughs> and uh you know Who then disowned it, of course, but it has made a huge difference in the lives of people who are living with low incomes, working people, as well as everyone else, right? And the other one that he he consistently put on the chopping block
0: was um, low-income heating assistance. Right. Uh, Which 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 your program administers here.
1: Right. What's called fuel assistance. We administer, let's remember the history of that program it It started under in Ronald Reagan's time, understanding that utility bills needed to get paid. We couldn't have people freezing in the United States of America. That was govern, you know that was President Reagan who said he wanted to do that. You know now the cynical part of me thinks part of that was that uh he wanted to make sure the oil companies were making their money and the utility companies were making their money, and maybe that's right, but ultimately people got their heat paid for. Right? And we and we were able to leverage that into helping to weatherize people's homes and improve their heating systems, which is an investment in the community that benefits everybody.
0: Right. There's a way in which uh, – and it's peculiar – in which uh, different uh, constituencies in this country can actually come together and support – a program or a project or expenditures right. or priority because they have very very different uh, interests but it's the same thing that governs foods uh, what is SNAP benefits which is right. it's, it's good for farmers it's good for poor people it's good for the economy it's good for all of the stores that uh, can accept uh, those SNAP benefit uh, uh, benefits as payment and so we have a SNAP program, not just and not primarily, I think, because the country is concerned about people going hungry, but because there are very wealthy segments of the economy that are benefited by it. Um, so I'm wondering if you would see, for example, SNAP as being safer than, well, the Affordable Care no. Act.
1: No, I why think not, what will not? happen is because I think what will happen is this idea of work programs, work, work programs for people who get SNAP. And, I mean, I think he'll still go after it. Does it end up being cut? I don't know. But the reality is that, you know, there's been a consistent push to get work, um, you know, people who are able-bodied is the term they use to go to work to get their SNAP benefits. And the reality is that people who get SNAP benefits are seniors, are um, are. part-time workers, are they're working, they're raising kids, whatever they're doing, people don't decide they want to get SNAP benefits. Like, that's not a life goal, right? Like, they, they go for, uh, to get those benefits because they need them at some point in their life cycle. Right? It's not, it's just, you know, the, his proposal was that people work tw- at least 20 hours a week um, to uh, to participate in the SNAP program. Now, if you're um, if you're a senior, are you off the hook there? Even even if if, you, if you're not disabled, not it, the whole thing is just it's punitive. It's 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 penalizing poverty. What would solve the problem is higher wages, right? <laughs> because m- many many people who are are receiving SNAP benefits are also
0: working. So, Clara Higgins, uh, as the executive director of Community Action, Pioneer Valley. I would like to have you reflect on this very recent news event. And I bring it up to you now because Mitch McConnell just uh, stepped away from his yeah. role as leader of the Republicans in the United States Senate. Uh, it is quite possible, some would say probable, that he will be the majority leader if and when the Republicans take over the United States Senate with a majority after the next election. You just referenced John McCain, who saved Obamacare when the Mm -hmm. vote came up. There is no John McCain left in the Senate. The Republicans are all acolytes and kissing the ring of Donald Trump. I think there's no protection in the Senate, if the Republicans take over, because there are no rational people. They say he's our authoritarian guy, and whatever he wants, we'll do it, including uh, killing a bill that they desperately wanted uh, with regard to the southern border. But Trump says, kill it because I need it as a campaign issue, and if it really hurts the country, that's great because it helps me. And I'm wondering if you have some reflections about uh, McConnell leaving the Senate and how that will affect, frankly, the programs designed to help people in trouble and alleviate poverty.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question about him leaving. Um, who would have thought that he was the firewall for some things, right? Right, he like
0: says, I can't, be the, I can't have this job anymore, I can't be the leader, because I'm not the leader. I'm not part of the party, really, anymore.
1: Right, right. Isn't that, isn't that unbelievable, right? <laughs> that Mitch McConnell, of all people, would be that person um, I don't know. I mean, I think the challenge is to, I I, I think what's interesting is what's happening at the state level in some of these states that, um, elect Republican senators, what's going on in their legislators as things like choice come, come forward and, and, uh, you know, referendums are pushing back on some of those things. So I don't know. I I don't know. I, I agree that, I mean, we have to you know i'm not speaking as the director here now because i'm talking about me as a human who cares about this stuff i have to work to get elected people who care about these values right and um there are ways to do that but you know he's the other and the reason i'm bringing this up at the state and local level is because a lot of these entitlements come through block grants that go to the states and then come to the localities.
0: Those so, states. Let in l- l- me interrupt. Let states, me interrupt. So you're talking about federal money that is administered by and distributed by the state, but without the correct. money from the federal government, these these monies don't exist. Right. The block grants disappear, right?
1: Right. What I'm saying is that the pushback on those cuts comes from state and local officials, many of whom are Republicans.
0: So he might not be able to example. Uh, Kill the Block Grant Program. Explain that to us, if you would, for a minute, please. So, uh,
1: you know, the block grants, some of these used to be direct um, to to the agencies, not through the state, right? Some of these funding sources, like we get community service block grant, um, goes through the states and then is administered by both public and private agencies. The home program, which does affordable rental housing, that goes really through states and municipalities. Community development block grants uh, go directly to municipalities or states, which distribute them. And LIHEAP, which is a large block grant, right, is goes through the
0: states. Okay, what, stop there for one second, please, Claire Higgins. What's a block grant?
1: Okay, good. thank you for asking that question. Instead of having direct contracts direct to the local provider, whoever that is, for instance, we're, we have Head Start, a Head Start grant that comes from the federal government directly to us. It doesn't go through the state to be administered. Okay. These block grants, the, those funds go to each of the states to be administered, and the distribution state by state is based on a formula that's identified on the federal level, but then the states have discretion through w- within the federal regulations how to use that money. And they, that reduces their ability to have money to spend in their communities, right? Like, if, if the community, if a home program is cut, you know, that's you know close to a billion dollars that comes out of state and local governments. State and local governments are not going to want to have that happen, both Democrats and Republicans.
0: The question I have for Clara Higgins, Executive Director of, the, of Community Action Pioneer Valley, is this. If the federal government tends to desert us on these crucially important programs, can the state step in? We'll hear the answer right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Clara Higgins, Executive Director of Community Action, Pioneer Valley, who, after this interview, is on her way to Greenfield Community College to testify between the Joint House and Senate Ways and Means Committee that is considering and hearing testimony about the budget, budget priorities, and amounts that have of the expenditures that should go to individual programs and institutions. Claire Higgins, you were telling us about block grants. I understand this will be part of what you testify about today with regard to child care. Tell us what you're going to tell the legislators, if you would, please.
1: Well, let me just mention that much of the child care money that comes into the state comes through the Child Care and Development Fund, which is a block grant to the state.
0: That's a block grant, money money from the federal government to the state. Federal
1: government to the state, right, to, to fund child care. And child care um or early care and education has been uh funded through the federal government on and off for decades and decades but um that that particular funding scheme came i think in the eighties or nineties but um i think in the eighties maybe but the, uh, today what i'm testifying about is the the need to in um continue investment in early education and care as the need for early education and care for young children has dramatically increased. You know, over 70% of families with children under six have both parents in the workforce, right? So they need high quality education and care for their children. And I want to note that, um, childcare teachers have been woefully underpaid for decades um the new the new commissioner at the educate department of education and care early education and care it's d-e-e-c has recognized that um and 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 the governor has funded in her last budget pretty dramatic increases to our rates in order to allow us to start raising salaries for people and that's made a big difference in our ability to fill fill teaching slots which have been very difficult i just want to note that for Young children, that's when for humans, brain development happens dramatically in the first three years and then five years of life. And so, and we invest, our investment in um, education and and, and um, it, it, is, it co- correlates to the size of the human, right? So we spend way more money at the college level and a, a pittance of that at the at the first five years of life, but that's actually when the brain development's happening. So there's been a recognition that we need to invest more in that, and I, I'm very grateful to the governor and the commissioner, Lieutenant Governor, for both increasing those rates, and then explicitly for increasing the rates in Western Mass, Southeastern Mass, and Central Mass, because our rates lagged far behind the bo- rates in the Boston area. Um, and that was a, a recognition that it was allowed because there was a change in the way the federal block grant allows you to think about rate setting, where they now let us look at the actual cost of providing high-quality care. That's the direction the state's going in, which will, over time, result in even higher rates. There, we, that allows us to hire people who can make a career in early education and care. I started as a child care teacher in, in, in Northampton. And uh, some of the most important work I did in my life was working with young children, and some of the most educational for me in terms of how people learn and grow. So uh, this is a huge issue for us to continue that investment on a m- micro level, because each, early, each young child deserves that investment, and on a macro level because Massachusetts is losing young families, which is a real challenge going forward. And people don't, can't stay because they can't afford to stay, both on the early ed side and on also on the housing side. And so this governor is making investment in both of those areas, and I'm very grateful for that.
0: So kudos to the healy uh, Driscoll administration for doing what you have said and increasing those rates, which, of course, has the corollary of increasing costs as well. Is this description that you've just given us going to be part of your testimony today or you will be focusing on other matters as well?
1: Well, this is primarily what I'm going to be focusing on. I will say that I'm I'm, I'm going to be also focusing on where can they get the money because this is a tough, tough budget year and um, uh, for many reasons and it's true across the country that states are grappling with challenging budgets this year. Um, I I was an early and strong supporter of the fair share um,
0: uh, the fair share amendment.
1: amendment. I was an original signer and uh, on the first petition, and I continue to be a supporter of that. and one of the reasons was because that, that we were discussing both early education and elementary and secondary education as well as transportation. and so, I hope that the healy Driscoll administration will look to the fair share to fund parts of the, the request that we're looking for to increase our rates over time.
0: Okay. You'll be testifying at the Joint Ways and Means Committee, the most important committee of the legislature that will be holding a Correct. hearing in, at Greenfield Community College today. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is probably an unfair question, but are you optimistic of what's going to happen and how can, if you are, Why, given the budget difficulties that you've just described? Uh, I think the governor has really been thoughtful about
1: how to make this happen, um, and and, and her commissioners. I I do think we have to... um, uh, There's two pieces here. One is growing out the system, and one is funding the system we have. And I'm optimistic that she's going to start with funding the system what we have before we try to make it larger, honestly. I mean, I worry about... We can't, how far far do we think we can grow this? And without additional money, the first additional money should go to strengthening the system we have. And then we have parents that need subsidy that aren't currently eligible, then we start growing the the system out as we have more money available. The fair share piece is part of that in my mind. Um, and, And I also, you know, I think that the challenge In public education, early education can be part of the solution. And, you know, there's some discussion about putting preschool kids in public schools. I'm challenged by that because working parents need a longer school... You know, they need a longer day and a longer year. And that's true for, you know, for people who have kids in public schools, too. Public schools provide a care function as well as an education function. And early education is about care and education but one, in both systems one doesn't go without the other doesn't happen
0: without the other we've been speaking with claire higgins she is the executive director of community action pioneer valley she'll be testifying shortly before the joint committee the joint ways and means committee this hearing about the budget i hope it goes successfully good luck today in front of the legislature claire higgins and thank, thank you and thank you so much for being with us today sure thanks Talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.